Well, good morning. <clears throat> it's nice to be back. <clears throat> Get it? A little slow, a little slow. It's okay. For most of you, you guys know that I was struggling this past week or so with a back injury, and thank you for your prayers, by the way. I was improving greatly day by day, and then yesterday I did something weird. I tried to do my yoga, and uh, I'm teasing again. <clears throat> I don't do yoga, but uh, I did something my back didn't like, and so I, I set it back a little bit, and I asked you to pray again, and you guys got me here. Thank you for praying. I do feel better today. Around 10.30 last night, honestly, I told Janine, there's something that changed. I just started feeling better. Um, movements didn't hurt as much, and I was able to, to sit up in bed and stuff like that. So thank you. Thank you for your prayers. I'm glad to be back with you guys today. Um, I mean that. Um, we're going to continue our, our series through the book of Ephesians as we continue the theme that we've been going through. Who wants to remember our theme through the book of Ephesians? We've, we've said this almost every week. We should say it in unison now. Can we, can we say it in unison? Lifestyles of the rich and godly. Nice work. Okay, so we have a few more lessons in the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 5 this morning, looking at verses 1 to 10. And Lord willing, our plan is to finish a couple weeks shy of Christmas and then have a Christmas message, but uh, pray that we can stay on track. We'll do it as God wants us to do, of course. But uh, we're going to look at verses 1 to 10 this morning, and we're going to call our lesson today, Children of God. Children of God. Before we get to the text, I'll ask you this question. Did you ever tell yourself that when you became a parent, you would be different than your parents were to you? Everyone's done that, right? I, I'm just honest. It's honest. When I become a dad, I'm going to be different than this guy right here. For whatever reason, you just think your parents, you know, could, could do better <laughs> towards you. This is really what I mean. You wish your parents would have set different boundaries and things like that. I'm going to read you a list of things that I told myself I would never do, uh, only to tell you today that I, I do all of them. Listen to this list and see if you can agree with this. Things I told myself I would never do when I became a parent. Number one is make my children eat food they didn't like. I hated that one. I remember having to sit at the dining table and having to finish my meatloaf before I got down from the table. I hated meatloaf. Now it's one of my food groups. But back in the day, I hated meatloaf. And my parents made me sit there until I could eat five pieces of meatloaf. And I had to choke that meatloaf down. And I told myself, when I become a parent, I'm not going to make my, my kids do that. That's torture. Guess what? Yeah, we do it. We do it because our kids would just eat candy all day long, unless we did it. So. I have learned that we have to do that in order for our kids to have a balanced diet. Here's another one. Make my children take naps. I, I remember in, in school, we had to write a pet peeve of ours. And one of my pet peeves is that my mom makes me take a nap when I'm not tired. That's what I wrote on my little third grade pet peeve. <laughs> and I meant it. I hated naps. And now they're wonderful. In fact, the reason we make our children take naps, now I exist on naps. Now I wake up from a nap just to look forward to the next nap. But now we make our children take naps, and I know the reason now. I didn't know it back in the day, but the, the nap isn't really for the child, is it? It is a, a little bit, but primarily it's for the parents <laughs> to get a little bit of a respite. And so the children have to lay down for a while and give us that break. So I get that one now, too. Here's another one. Drag my children on errands with me. My dad used to take us to all kinds of errands. He called it mentoring, and I called it, I called it torture. <laughs> Drag us to the dry cleaning and go to Walmart and kind of picks up his prescription and all kinds of things. I hated errands. And I told myself, I'm never going to take my children on these errands. They don't want to go. I, they don't need to go on those errands with me. And now I do it all the time. If I'm going somewhere, I'm going to grab a kid, throw them in the back, and I'm going to mentor them. Sometimes, that's right. They're, they're going on several errands, sometimes double dipping with parents and grandparents. Um, 
Here's another one that my mom primarily did that I really didn't like as a child. Make up lyrics to songs just to mess up the song. My mom used to take a song that was popular or cool and to just change the lyrics to it and ruin it forever. And I hated that. Because that's how I saw the song every single time. And now I can't help myself. Now a little song comes on, one of their YouTube kid things, or come on, and I just have to ruin it. I have to make up lyrics to the song. And my, my son had and goes, Dad, that's not the song lyrics. That's not how it goes. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Apple doesn't fall far. You'll do it someday, Haddon. Here's another one is make my, or nag my children about making crumbs and messes, right? Every parent does that. I'm king of this. I have kind of a neat, orderly guy, and I really don't like when crumbs and messes are just left in the house. But I told myself as a, as a kid when my parents would do that, chill out, chill out. It's just a mess. It's just crumbs. They're not going to kill anybody. And now I'm kind of naughty about it. I'm like, pick up those crumbs. You're not doing it. You're not doing, you're not going to eat your dinner until that mess is picked up. So some of the things I have to, I have to eat some crow on. <laughs> uh, kiss my wife in front of the kids. I told, I, I remember as a child going, gross, stop it. Don't do that in front of us, you know? And now I, I do it all the time. I think that's a good thing for me to kiss my wife in front of my children. But I remember thinking as a kid, don't do that. We don't like to see that. That's nothing we want to see. You do that in your own time. <laughs> but uh, now we do it all the time. Um, here's another one. Ignore them when they're asking me something during a big game. Um, <laughs> When the big game is on, I don't do this a lot, but when the big game is on and my children have their little things going on and they're asking me, asking me, asking me, I can't help but zone them out a little bit. And I remember my dad doing that, going, were you even in the room sometimes when I ask you? It's like, dad, 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 dad. He is just stonewall straight to the TV. Now I get it. You just have to have those moments. The kid will live. Right? I mean, come on. They're going to make it. Um, here's another one is... Make them watch cartoons that I used to enjoy. My kids have their own version of cartoons that I think are dumb. I just don't understand their cartoons. I wish they would watch like DuckTales and things like that that I was into. So I sit them down and I make them watch DuckTales. And the old school DuckTales, not the cool DuckTales. Because I think that's better. And I remember my dad going, what, why do you guys play this Mario game? What is this Mario game? I don't get it. And now I'm like, my kids are playing these video games going, what is this? What are you playing? This is strange. Why don't you play Mario? <laughs> Oh, man. Here, here's one I'm not over, overly proud of, but um, stealing money from their piggy banks when I'm in a pinch. <laughs> okay, now I don't know. I don't know if dad ever did this, but mom definitely did. Mom definitely did this one. Mom would, would, would steal our stash from time to time. And now I, the reason I do it is because I don't really carry cash. So if things require cash and I don't have cash, I know where to get it. <laughs> And I think I have reimbursed everything. I think Haddon would, you'll have to check with Haddon on that one. But I have from time to time dipped into the piggy bank just when I need it. And here's the last one, is that when my parents ask for, or when my children ask for a snack, I always have to take the first handful. <laughs> I remember that when I was little, my, my, my dad saying, can I have a snack, Dad? And go, yeah, yeah. And he'd take the first few chips or bag or handful and go, come on, Dad. It's snacks for me. And now I do it all the time. I have to test it. Did you ever do things as a parent that you wish your parents didn't do when you were little. Well, we're going to talk about imitating someone today. We're going to look at Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 10, because this is a really important lesson. We're going to talk about imitating God today, imitating God. Why don't you follow me in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, and listen to the word of God. Paul says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, 
a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We're going to call today's lesson Children of God. We're going to look at how we can imitate God. And we have three goals that we're going to set before ourselves today. Goal number one is this. To see that we must imitate our God and our Father by obedience to his commandment to walk in love at all times. That's our goal number one. Goal number two is to deal harshly with selfish sins as if they were a disease sent by the devil to destroy us. We need to deal harshly with sins. That's goal number two. We find that in a text. And goal number three is this, to walk in light and always be asking, what is your will, God? What is your will? So those are our three goals we want to get to today. We have turned the page. If you remember for the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul did a little bit of foundation work. He reminded us of the gospel, reminded us of who we once were, reminded us of what has come to us based on the cross of Jesus Christ, the grace of God through Jesus. And in chapter 4, he turned the page and started to exhort us to do things based on that new nature. So that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in the middle of his exhortation. The last three chapters are about what to do based on who we are. And so that's what we're going to look at again today. But I want to review a little bit of what he's already said because this is what the, the Apostle Paul has told us so far from chapter 4 and on. He has mentioned this, number one, that we have a calling from God. And that we're both supposed to know what that calling is and to live according to that calling. And we looked at what that calling means. We're called to be children of God. We're called to be citizens of heaven. And we're called to act as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. That's our calling. Honestly, that's the meaning of life. Right there. Scholars are trying to figure out what the meaning of life is, and we find out in Scripture that that's exactly the reason we are supposed to live. To act like children of God, to act like citizens of heaven, and to act like ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Because that's what God designed us for. That's why he created us. That's why he redeemed us. So that we could act accordingly to how he created us. So Paul said that. He said, live and act according to your calling. Number two, he said, strive for unity together in the church because that's how we give ourselves the best chance to live out that calling. Unity, togetherness, oneness, helping each other, coming together. We desperately need one another in order to live out this calling. And we all need to help each other and arrive at that calling because this isn't an individual calling, it's a corporate calling. It's a calling for every single one of us. If I live out my calling and you're not living out your calling, that shouldn't be okay with me. And if you're living out your calling and one of your church members are not living out their calling, that shouldn't be okay with you either. We all need to live out our calling and we all need to help one another do this. This is a team thing. That's why there's so many team sports because that's the best way to accomplish a goal, by helping one another. 
So it's impossible to overstress the importance of unity within the church. And Paul really at length talked about how important it is to unify together. That's the second thing he's taught us. Number three is that God has specifically, specially, and uniquely designed us, every one of us, with a gift, a different gift and a different ability to help the entire church become mature and to live out our calling within community. And if we don't have everyone working together and using their specific gift, then we're all in danger of neglecting to live out that calling. That's how important it is. You have a gift. I have a gift. All of those gifts need to come together and help us become mature because we're one unit. We're one unit. When someone is down, we're hurt by that. And we need to help one another with our gifts and our abilities invest in this thing that we call the church. So we need every one of you in order to accomplish our calling. I need you to accomplish my calling, and that's really important. And number four, he said that we're no longer to live like Gentiles, sinners, according to our former manner of life that was corrupted through sin. He said, no longer live that way. Put that old self off. And he said, rather live like new beings who practice the same kind of things that our God does. And that's really where we come to today. We're going to find out how important it is to imitate God. Imitate God. And that's what we're going to discuss for the rest of our time today. Number one, we're going to look at this today, is imitating our Father. Imitating our Father. Paul is going to say this one thing that's going to bring everything together that he said up to this point. We are to imitate our God. Yes, there's a poor imitation that's out there. There's a a word imitation that can kind of mean a cheaper, lesser, phony version of something. Like that one time I told you I went to New York City and they were selling watches that said Rolex on them. And I bought one thinking I was buying a Rolex watch for $15, only to find out I think it was spelled like Rolex. Um, It was a poor imitation, a really poor imitation. That's not what we're talking about today. We're not talking about that version of imitation. When Paul says imitate, he's telling us to act like our God acts. As God acts, you are to act. As God thinks, you are to think. And I want us to consider this commandment today. Imitate God. Imitate God. Think about what Paul is saying there. Are you ready to jump into the deep end of the pool today? Because that's a really big request, or demand, I should say, a command, is to imitate God. And that's what we're going to explore today. In order to imitate someone, what do you first need to do? You need to learn about them. If you've ever seen anyone do an impression, right? When We like those. I like when people do impressions of people that are famous and things like that. That takes a lot of learning. You have to learn mannerisms and what they say and how they say it. It takes a lot of learning. If we're going to imitate God, that demands and assumes that we have to get to know God. How can we imitate someone if we don't know who they are? And that's what Paul is saying. Get to know God. This imitation process begins with learning. It really does. It begins with going to school, sitting beneath the feet of Jesus and learning about God and what God loves and what God hates and what God thinks and what God calls holy. Remember the old game we used to play that I play all the time with my children called Simon Says? Right? Simon Says. I was doing this with my daughter the other day. We were playing this game of Simon Says. And I shouldn't have gone down this road, but I I decided to because I was running out of things to tell her. She just wanted to go on and on and on. I'm like, how many times can I tell her to touch her ear? (laughs) And so (laughs) I came up with this question. I said, okay, Simon Says, Adelaide, act like mommy. And she said, (laughs) I wish I would have had this on video. She goes, 
no snacks until you eat your dinner. <laughs> I was like, nailed it. Good job, Addie. But then I had to ask the follow-up question. I said, Adelaide, act like daddy. And she goes, pick up the toys from the floor. <laughs> and I chuckled a little bit because I thought, oh, well, okay, okay, they're definitely listening, at least to know they're listening. But that's, that's Adelaide's version of imitating her father and her mother, and I thought that was interesting. But that, that required that she listened and learned about kinds of things that we say. And I want us to think about this today. What is our current level of knowing God? What is our current level of knowing God? Because imitating God is not going to happen unless we know God, unless we're learning what our God is like, what our Father is like. And that requires discipline, and we're going to get back to that. Discipline in order to know our God. I would love to assume and tell you today that we can just hear one lesson about him every week and we can know God intimately, but we can't. This isn't enough. It's never meant to be enough. This is a supplement. We are supposed to be diving into the scriptures, learning about our God in a very personal fashion. So what is your current level of getting to know God? We cannot be lazy in the Christian life. If we're lazy, we're not going to know. And if we don't know, we're not going to imitate. So what is your level of knowing God? See, our motivation to imitate God is quite simple. He says it right there in the text. We are his beloved children. That's why. That's why we are to imitate our God, because we are his beloved children. We're not hired hands primarily. Primarily, we are God's child. Child. Made and adopted through the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that we just celebrated in communion. And that's an important thing to know, that we are God's children. That's a special, intimate relationship that I have with the God of the universe. Have you ever just thought about that for a moment? Going, not only do I know some things about God, but God considers me his child. God looks out for me like I'm his child. I know how much care I give my children. If God even gives that much care to me, and I know he gives much, much more than I give to my children, how incredibly special is that, that God considers me his child and treats me like that? And that's the motivation. I think every kid has gone through this phase. I'm seeing this with my own children. They want to be like daddy or mommy. They do. Maybe you grow out of that after a while, but you want to be like your daddy and mommy. We should want to be like our father. Our father is the best father imaginable. And that's a good and honorable quality to say, I want to be like my father because we have the best father ever. Remember the old thing you used to say as a little kid, my dad can beat up your dad. <laughs> my dad actually could. Um, really, I mean, when they saw him, they knew it. Okay, your dad wins. Um, but right, we, and we have the best, strongest dad and father imaginable, and that is our God. And this... This imitation process should be an honor. It should be a privilege to be like our Father because of what this relationship requires, the blood of Jesus. It required that he sent his only begotten son to us to die so that we could be adopted into his family, so we could be beloved, we could be cherished, we could be treasured by the God of the universe. And that's pretty special and important, isn't it? But not only must we act according to our Father, we should want to act according to our Father. We have his DNA. And that, that's, don't take that too literally, but we are, we are made up from the image of God. That's how we were made. That's how we were created. We were made out of the image of God. So acting according to this, now that we're redeemed, should be natural for us. It should be natural. It's natural for my children to act like their dad and mom a little bit. It's, it's natural for me to act like my parents. Because we have the same makeup. 
Well, we have the same makeup as our God. And yes, we were cursed and stained by sin for a while, but God redeemed us and we're learning and we're growing and we're maturing. And the more we learn, the more we grow, the more natural it becomes to act like our God. But we need to want to. We need to see the necessity of imitating our Father. We cannot, if we cannot, or we refuse to act like God, that's a telltale sign that something's wrong. It could be as dangerous as this. We might be dead. We not, might not be alive spiritually. If we don't want to act like God, nor can we act like God, then that's something we need to explore. Because imitating God is a huge, huge privilege. And it's also a huge responsibility. And I need to say this today, that when we don't imitate God properly, as his children, we do something quite extraordinary. We hurt the name of God. We hurt the name of God. When we have Jesus' name on our life, when we say we're God's children, and we act in opposition to the way God wants us to, we actually hurt his name. I remember my parents telling me that as a child. When we'd go to certain functions, act respectful. You're representing the name of Walker today. I need you to act respectful. I remember hearing that a few times from my parents, thinking how important it is to represent the name well of Walker. And I've carried that through my life, thinking my, my parents are well-respected. Everywhere I've went, my parents have been well-respected, and I've tried to emulate that because I don't, want them, I don't want that name to be soured and spoiled in people's minds because they've built that name up. Well, how important is the name of God? It's beyond our estimation. And when God has made us his children, he's given us this enormous responsibility to imitate him, to act accordingly to the way that he has trained and taught us. We know this, right? God is our Father. We are adopted in a sense, but we are also made new creatures who can be and act like our God. In fact, I would say it this way, that being and acting like God is validation that we actually do belong to God. When we act like God, we have validation that we are of God. And if we don't act like God, that validation is not there. So how do you act? How do you think? What is important to you in this life? The name of God should be at the top of the list if you're his child. So that's the motivation that we find. Here's the best way that we find to imitate our Father. The best way is given to us in this passage. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. In verse 2 he says, And walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love. That is the best way to imitate your God and your Father. It's so simple, isn't it? Love. You find that all over Scripture. Love, it's so simple, but it's so profound. Walk in love. The fruit of righteousness of love is, is low-hanging fruit. You can find it all over Scripture. You don't have to become mature to learn about love. You learn that initially. How important it is to love, to walk in love. Because we learn this from 1 John. It tells us that God is love. God is love. And if God is love and we are to imitate our God, what are his children supposed to be like? Love. I mean, from A to Z, that's what should define Christians. If God is love and we are to imitate our God, this is a simple equation here, but God's children should be love also. That should be the thing that we are growing in and walking in the most, is love. And if we know our God and we know love, and we know how important it is to our Father's will, then we will get at love, because love is his number one overarching commandment for our lives. It's so incredibly important, but it's also elementary. 
It's profound and elementary at the same time. And I think the reason that a lot of people miss love is because of those two reasons. It's incredibly elementary. Sometimes we overshoot it and think it can't be love. It's got to be more complex than that. But it's also so costly. And we're going to look at those two pitfalls now. Because I think those are the pitfalls that are holding people back from walking in love. Even people who say they're children of God. These are the two reasons we might not walk in love. Is Number one, it's too simple. It's too simple. And number two is it's too costly. Let's look at these two pitfalls quickly. Number one, love is too simple. To imitate God should be much more complex than this, right? Perhaps imitating God is best done by knowing the intricacies of the universe or being the smartest or the richest or the most powerful person in the room, right? Because that's how God is. He's the richest. He's the biggest. He's the smartest. So maybe the best way to walk in imitation of our God is to be that smart, is to be the smartest and the richest and the most powerful person we can be. And we overshoot the thing that he actually taught us to do. Walk in love. The simpleton can look to God and find that. Walk in love. Walk in love. You don't have to be highly educated. You don't have to go to a lot of schools. You don't have to have all these degrees to learn about love. You simply have to sit before the feet of your Lord. And he tells you this all the time. Walk in love. And Paul cuts straight through all the guessing games so we don't have to guess. Imitating God is all about walking in love. If you're going to learn anything today, it's going to be that. That laying down our needs and wants for the sake of others is so godlike, isn't it? Laying down our needs and our wants for the sake of someone else is like God. It's like God. That's how God acts. And love is supposed to be obvious. You're not be able to say on the last day, I missed it. What, God, love is important? No, no one can say that. Whether you've been in Christianity for a week or in the entirety of your life, you will know how important it is to walk in love. So we don't need to overthink this. We don't need to overthink this concept of walking in love because it's simple on purpose. It's low-hanging fruit on purpose. Take it, grab it, and use it. And that's how important love is. But here's number two. One of the reasons I don't think people walk in love is because it's too costly. It's costly to walk in love, isn't it? Love is so attacked in our minds from the devil because of this one reason. He says to us all the time, it's too costly. Yes, it's simple. Yes, it's important. But look how hard it is to love. Look how costly it is to love. So even if we want to walk in love, even if we understand how important love is, the devil, too, knows how profound love is. And he's putting all of his, his, all of his energy, all of his tactics, all of his weaponry against this one thing. Get them to stop walking in love. Because love is that profound. Love will destroy the kingdom of darkness. And he knows that. So he's going to put all of his energy into that one thing. Get them to stop walking in love. If they don't walk in love, they don't hurt us. If they do walk in love, they will destroy the, the works of darkness. So he has to do everything he, he can to nullify and neutralize love. And the way that he does that is, is quite ingenious. He just highlights everything else. Because when he highlights everything else, love becomes suppressed and in the mix and clouded. And you lose sight of the most important thing God ever taught you. Love, love, love. He highlights everything else. All these weird rules and all of these knowledge and things you can learn in Christianity and going to school and getting degrees and going to church and wearing the right things. And, and suddenly you don't think about love. 
because he knows how important it is for us to walk in love. And he's going to do everything he can to keep us from that. But we must consider that love is so godlike. It's so godlike. In fact, I would say this the costliest thing we can do is to not walk in love. To not walk in love would cost us God's glory and our eternal well being. Is anything worth that? Is anything worth losing out on the, the ability to glorify God and the ability for us to be eternally healthy? It's costly. That is incredibly costly to stand on the last day and to find out that we were not loving people. We were not obedient to God's commandment to walk in love. Because love is twofold. It glorifies God and it beautifies our soul for all of eternity. That's how awesome love is. When we love, God is glorified and we are blessed. What else does it? What else does it to that degree that God is glorified and we're blessed when we walk in love? Can anything more co- be more costly than to not walk in love? If it's that valuable to God, if it's that valuable to the kingdom of God, can anything be more costly than to not walk in love? Can we afford to not walk in love? We can't. We cannot. We cannot afford justifying away love and walking in disobedience for our entire lives. We cannot. Because there's a day that's coming called Judgment Day. It's coming for every single one of us, and the Lord is the one we're going to stand before. And he's going to bear the wounds of the cross for all of eternity. He's going to have the imprints of his love. And he's going to have his scriptures that constantly reminded us over and over how important love is. Can we say on Judgment Day, God, I didn't love. I neglected love. I didn't get to it. I was too busy. I was too distracted. I lost sight of it. I thought other things were more important. Is anything going to work on Judgment Day if we say that to God? God, I didn't walk in the most important commandment you ever taught me, to love you and to love others. The answer is no. And perhaps the best reason to walk in love is because it's the foundation of our very life with God. Jesus brought life into our souls, and he did that by walking in love. Both in his life and in his death, Jesus' sacrifice of love, we find in the text, was a sweet-smelling fragrance and sacrifice to our God. And that is primarily why he gave up his life, to please his God and to please his Father. That's why, God walked, or that's why Jesus walked in love. So we were literally created through love. Love is our DNA strand. We were literally made new by love. And so love is so crucial to our very makeup. It's so crucial to our very life. It's so crucial to our relationship with God. It's so crucial to how we imitate our Father. Take this home with you today. Simple or mature, new or been in this Christianity a long time. It's all about love. If you want to imitate God, if you want to please God, if you want to glorify your Father, get it, love. Get at it. Make it the theme and the practice of your life. So if Jesus did this, if Jesus walked in love so that God would be glorified, how much more should his servants do so? How much more should God's adopted children walk in love if our Lord Jesus gave his entire life to that practice and death? And what type of love are we to walk in? This is where we find this out in verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up 
for us. What kind of love? Christ-like love. Because kindness is loving, right? It's loving to be kind. It's loving to be respectful. It's loving to just be generally nice to the people around you. But that's not the type of love that we are commanded to love like. Paul says we are supposed to love as Christ loved us. What kind of love is that? How did Jesus love us? Consider that question. How did Jesus love you? And you will find out the type of love that you are supposed to give to others. Because Jesus loved us by giving himself up entirely for us. Not with his extras. Not with his scraps. Not when he had time. Jesus gave us himself entirely. He left everything that he wanted in heaven, everything that made him rich, everything that made him truly royal, and he gave it up, and he came to earth to give us what we needed. Do you see love there? He gave up everything in heaven to give us salvation and to give us a sacrifice for sins. Jesus lost so we could gain. Jesus went broke for our sake, people. He went broke. He went from riches to rags so that we could be loved. That's the kind of love that we're called to give to others. The kind of love that will cost you. The kind of love that is demanding of your time and your energy and your money and your possessions. Because this is the kind of love that Jesus gave you. And I think with love, we all kind of assume that we are loving already. I think if you're learning, listening to this passage, you're probably nodding, going, I am that person. I am loving. Check it out off. I'm already doing it. But are you loving at the way Jesus loved you? That's the question. Are you loving the way Jesus loved you? Because that's the kind of love that imitates our God. You can't just round up. You can't just assume that you're loving people the way Jesus loved you. You have to look at that. You have to consider that. You have to look at how Jesus loved you. You have to pray about that. You have to look at the things in your life that are holding you back from loving the way that Jesus loved you. It takes work. And it takes sacrifice. And that's pitfall number two. It's costly. It's costly to love. But as we've explored already, it's way more costly not to love. Way more costly to say to God, I'm sorry, it's too much. You're asking me too much, God, while we're bearing the very wounds of Jesus upon our soul. It doesn't work. It's not too costly. It's exactly what we should be giving. And we've titled this theme through the book of Ephesians, Lifestyles of the Rich and Godly, right? Lifestyles of the Rich and Godly. And really the way I want us to look at that theme is this way, is we should be giving up earthly riches for the sake of godliness and for the sake of eternal riches. Because we are rich in a way on this earth. God has blessed us with many things. We live in a Western culture where even people who are poor in a Western culture are rich in context of the entire world. We have a lot of things, don't we? That's why there's a thing called first world problems. Because even some of our problems in our first world country aren't really problems in the context of the entire world. So we're rich, and we're blessed, and we have lots. And God has done that on purpose. I don't think we're supposed to be guilt-ridden by those things. I think we're supposed to take those things and bless people with them. Because the richer you are, the more you have to give. The more opportunity you have to bless. And we are people that are supposed to have lifestyles of the rich and godly, eternally rich, eternally godly. And so everything God has given us on this earth is a tool to use back for his sake and for his, for his imitation process. Let's go to number two. Because Paul says we need to deal harshly with selfish 
sins, as we're going to call today the anti-love. He gets very specific here. This is the hard part of the passage, and we're going to do with our best with our time today. If we have to cut it off, then we're going to. I don't want to rush through this, but Paul says we have to deal harshly with selfish sins. As soon as he tells us to imitate God by walking in love, he immediately tells us to avoid all kinds of selfish sins and lifestyle. Why? Because they're the anti-love. They're the anti-love. They're everything that would hurt you from loving one another. He begins by saying that sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, which he calls idolatry, should not even be named amongst us. Should not even be named amongst us. In other words, no characteristic of these sins should ever find themselves next to our name and reputation. Wow. No sexual immorality, no impurity, no covetousness, which is idolatry, should ever be next to your name as a child of God. Why? Because they're the anti-love. They're selfish. They're self-seeking. They're carnal. They're only about our flesh. They have no ability, no potential to please or bless anyone besides us in the flesh. These sins that he's talking about that we could get very specific here. Sexual immorality, you could term it fornication, is any sort of sexual perversion outside of marriage. Impurity would even be a broader sense of that word. Is anything that God would consider impure, perverse, gross. We could talk about pornography, things like that in that category. Covetousness probably is the American sin. We don't know how to be content. It's like as soon as we get something, we're already looking for the next something. Right? We're already driven to something greater, something better. And Paul says that's a selfish way to live. That should have nothing to do with your lifestyle. That doesn't bless people. That doesn't encourage people. That doesn't lift people up. It is the anti-love. Therefore, walking in these types of sins, it's a massive red flag. It is a massive red flag that we are walking on the wrong path. Because now we're imitating someone else. Not our God. Our God is not like that. Our God has commanded us over and over and over to not be about those types of sins. So when we're imitating those types of things, now we're imitating someone else. The devil. The devil. And that path is wrong. That path is south. That path is going the wrong way. And if we are on that path, we need to be very careful to get off that path immediately. Because that path does not lead to the kingdom of God. It does not. We cannot be walking in sexual sin. We cannot be walking in perversion. We cannot be covetous people and pretend that we're also following the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't work. It doesn't necessarily mean we're not saved, but we need to check. We need to check. We need to take that before God and say, God, I, this is in my life. This is, these are anti-love, anti-God behaviors, and you hate them. God, what is it? What is it that I'm struggling with, and how do I overcome this? Do I actually belong to you? Do I have the power to conquer this? And if so, help me to believe. Help me to obey. Help me to get up this very day and to cast those sins off and to walk in love. Because those kinds of sins are God-hating behaviors. And that is the contrary of what Paul is telling us to do. Imitate God. Imitate God. Walk in love. Sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness cannot bless your God. And it cannot love other people. It has zero potential and possibility to love. So repent. Put it off. Put it to death. And get at love. Because love is the path to life. And sin is the path to death. It's that simple.
And then he says this, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Put them away. Put them away. They should have no place in the Christian life because once again, they have no ability to bless anyone else. They might seem quite benign and in good fun to us. There it is. I did just do the air quotes. At least I told you I was going to do the air quotes today. There it is. You're welcome. She says I do air quotes once a sermon. Anyways, which I probably do. Um, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, they, they sound like they're in good fun. They sound like they're no big deal. They sound like it's just having a fun time. But here's the problem with those kinds of things. They don't bless anybody. And that's the problem Paul is bringing up, saying, listen, put that stuff away. We're talking about something incredibly mature. The reason you were created, the reason you were redeemed is to imitate your father. Does God do that? No, he doesn't. He hasn't. He never will. So that kind of stuff should not be in the life of the Christian. And that's convicting because I like to laugh, right? I like to make other people laugh. It seems like there's seasons for, for humor. I believe there is. I believe humor is something that can even be holy but not in a crude fashion, not in a foolish way, not in a way that can hurt someone, not in a way that can sort of promote sin, never. It always should be put away because it's, again, it's anti-love. It can't help, it can't bless, it can't glorify your God. <coughs> so what we speak about is what we delight in. What do you speak about? What do you delight in? How much foolishness is in your life? That's a good barometer. It's a good litmus test for what you're actually consider important in your life because even our speech should be saturated and consumed by love, shouldn't it? Even my very words should have the propensity to build someone up, to bless other people. But oftentimes when I'm just living in filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking, it's just carnal. It's just about flesh. It's just about a good time, a good feeling. It has no possibility to build up my neighbor. And Paul is saying this, very simple. Anything that can't love others should be put away from us, from our lips, from our ha habits, from our lifestyle, from our actions. Love is our reason for living. It is our reason for living. So poor speech patterns are just as sinful as poor habits. And they need to be put away. And then he says this, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Whatever you would have done with those crude, foolish, crude, joking type of things. Replace it with thanksgiving. Replace it with thanksgiving. A better way to practice love in our speech is to always be ready to give thanks to our God. Remember the Simon Says thing where I ran out of things to say? Do you ever run out of things to thank God for? Ever? Can you go to the end of that list? Can you? I mean, if you really explored Thanksgiving God and really wanted to touch everything and thank God for every single good thing in your life, do you think you'd be at it a while? <laughs> There's a lot of things to thank God for. There's a lot of ways that we can bless and thank our God. A lot of mediums we have today to bless our God and thank our God. And that's a better way to use our speech. That's a better way to bless our neighbor because when we're giving thanks, it blesses God to hear it and it blesses those who might hear us offered up to God. And that is seasoned with salt. That is a, a possibility to bless other people when we're thanking God. I would say it this way. Maybe you guys know sports a little bit. I never played volleyball, but in volleyball, they have these things called a set, right? So someone could spike it down on the other side. Well, Thanksgiving is like a set for love. It sets it up so love can spike it down. Thanksgiving is the first step, I think, into walking in love. Because when you're thankful, you're thinking about your God. 
You're reminded about how good he is. You're reminded of how much he's blessed you. And then you're very close to walking in love right then because you're remembering how much love, how much goodness he's given to your life. And then you're looking at the people around you going, man, I should be like that too. I remember, God. I remember what you've done. I remember even this week what you've blessed me with. And God, I want to love too. I want to imitate you. So thanksgiving begets or gives birth to love. So start by giving thanks. If you need to work on love, start by giving thanks this week. Really. I mean, make a list. Tell someone. Sit down as a practice and write it down until you get carpal tunnel. How many things I can give thanks to God this week. And thanksgiving is one of those rare threefold fruits, guys. It glorifies God. It blesses others. And it reminds us of how good God has been to us. It strengthens faith. Three different things it does. Glorifies God, blesses those who hear it, and strengthens our faith. Is Thanksgiving a good practice? And now we're coming up on the season of Thanksgiving where once a year we like to go around the table and say something we're thankful for. But what if we got at it right now? What if every day we spent time in Thanksgiving? That is the first natural step to walking in love. But foolish talk and crude joking, on the other hand, has zero potential to bless God. It has zero potential to bless others. And it has zero potential to strengthen our faith. It should be put away from, for us, from us for good because God hears every word we utter, doesn't he? Every word he hears. And he wants us to imitate him. So consider what you speak about. Remember you've heard the old adage, if you have nothing good to say, don't say it. Well, that's a good adage, but maybe this. You have plenty of good things to say, don't you? You have plenty of good things to say about your God, don't you? Let's start. Let's start this week. Let's start this very day. Let's bless our God. Let's bless others who hear it. And let's strengthen our faith by thanksgiving. Paul says these types of sins, this is where it gets hard. And this is where we may end today because I don't want to rush through this. I want to spend a good amount of time on this. Paul says these types of sins that he's just mentioned, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, crude talking, foolish joking, are the very reason the wrath of God is coming. That's weighty. I'm going to reread it in verses 5 and 6. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He calls those who practice these types of sins, sons of disobedience. Proving to us that if we practice these kinds of sins, we're not actually imitating the Father at all. We're not actually imitating God at all. And that's a huge red flag. Who are we imitating? We're imitating Satan. We're imitating the evil one. Do you think it's dangerous to imitate Satan? This is the very reason, he says, the wrath of God is coming to destroy all those who do not walk in love. That's how important it is to walk in love because God says, it's the reason I created you. And when you went astray and when you went sinful and when you went corrupt, I saved you, and the reason I saved you is because I wanted you to walk in love as I've taught you. So two different times you were created, 
And they were both for the same reason, so that you can imitate God by walking in love. And when we don't, and when we deal with these kinds of selfish lifestyle sins, we're wrong. We're dangerously wrong. We are going the wrong way. We are going south when we should be going north. And that's incredibly dangerous. We have to repent. We have to stop today. We have to put that kind of behavior away today. We have to call it dangerous. Okay, if you deal around with a live hand grenade, eventually that thing's going to go off. We cannot flirt with these kinds of sins. We cannot flirt with anti-love actions and thought processes and behaviors. And Paul wants us to know that these sins are so contrary to God and his will for us that walking in them or even flirting with them should make us ask the question, who do we actually belong to? If that's the kind of life that I'm leading and I call myself a Christian, they don't match. They don't match. So who, does that, who do I actually belong to? Because God, my God and our Father does not wink at anti-love behaviors. He does not wink at sin. He does not sweep sin under the rug. He does not look the other way when we're sinning. He hates it. He detests it. It's against everything that he is like. And if these are things that God detests, and they are, we need to understand that these are the type of people that are going to find his wrath. It's that simple. That's weighty, isn't it? The word wrath should awaken us if it hasn't by now. Because God's punishment is real. God's wrath is real. And it is coming to all those who don't get with the program, who are unwilling to walk in love, unwilling to make love the theme and the practice of their lives. So if we say we're Christians, then practical sacrificial love will be our theme and it will be our practice. It has to be. And if practicing, practicing sin characterizes our habits and desires, then we need to do some serious soul inspection today. We need to find out why we're walking in the things that God says he hates and that God says he's going to destroy one day. That needs to be asked. God, why am I doing this thing? Why am I walking in anti-love behaviors? Because of this very thing, we cannot afford to be wrong about God's wrath. I cannot get that one wrong. You cannot get that one wrong. There's some things in Scripture we're going to be wrong about. We're not going to get this 100% accurate. I cannot be wrong about God's wrath, and neither can you. If God says these things lead to wrath, I'm not going to mince any words today. They lead to wrath. Get off. Get off that ride. Get off that path. Turn around and start practicing love. And if you're not able to, or you don't want to, take it to the Lord. You might not be saved. You might not have his power. You might not have what you think you have. There was a time in my life that I wasn't walking in love. I was walking in the behaviors I just mentioned. And that was dangerous. Once I realized how dangerous I was, I went to God and said, God, I'm messing up big time. What needs to happen here? Am I saved? Am I new? Am I a new creature? Or am I just disobedient? Do I just need to get up and start practicing the things that you've taught me? Ask those really hard questions today. Because if you're wrong about wrath today, there's hope. There's hope. You could turn around today. If you're wrong about wrath at Judgment Day, there's no hope. That's the end. So do we have any anti-love practices in our lives today? Because it matters for eternity. If there's a place called hell, and there's eternity before that, if there's a place of eternal hell, we cannot afford to be wrong about that. Let's skip the quote by Matthew Henry. I'm going to go to this next thing. Paul takes it one step further. This is probably where we're going to close today. 
And he tells us that we shouldn't even be associated, not closely, with those who we just described. Those sinful lifestyles are so God-hating and others-hating, we cannot entertain people closely and be partners with people and close friends with people that are dealing and walking in righteous anger and hostility to God. And that's something we have to consider today is who are your closest friends? Who are the people you're spending time around? Because spending time around those who practice sin is a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope. The more we see sin lived out as common and normal, the more likely we are to flirt with those kinds of behaviors. The more likely we are to practice those kind of behaviors and slide all the way down to a devilish, anti-God lifestyle. It cannot be so. To love God is to hate sin with a righteous energy. If you love God, you also hate sin. And friends with God-haters equates hating God. If you're closely associated with friends, and friends, with people that are living anti-love, anti-God behaviors, you're hurting your God. And you might say today, well, Jesus was friends with sinners. Yes, he was, in a way. Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was a chronic lifestyle sinner. He was taking people's money. He was a scoundrel. He was a crook. And it looked like Jesus was friends with Zacchaeus. He went to his house. And so you could say Jesus was friends with sinners. But what happened to Zacchaeus that day? He was saved. He turned around. Zacchaeus was no longer that way from that day forward. Jesus did not flirt and wink at sin and sinful lifestyles and practices. He was not closely associated. Judas was in his company. But we know Judas kept the pretense going for about three years that he was a true Christian. Jesus did not and was not closely associated with sinners. The people that he closely associated were his disciples. The people that got on board with walking in love. And Paul says the same thing. Make sure your friends are also godly. Your closest friends, your closer relationships are people that are also on board with this. That's again, points back to unity in the church. Your closest relationships in Christianity should be those people of the church. Whether they're actual relations with you in the flesh or not. The people you should be spending the most time with are the people that are also walking in love. For two reasons. It's a God-glorifying lifestyle and whoever you're around... I, t- I learned this from my mother ever since I was young. Whoever you're around, you're going to act like. You just are. And I remember having a couple negative influences in my life. And my mom saying to me, you can't hang around them anymore. Because you're starting to act like them. If you want to imitate God, who should you be around the most? I'm not saying you can't have any friends who are unsaved. But you should spend most of your time, most of your profound time, with people who love God. And the other people you should pray for and witness to and set an example before because you're called and I'm called to imitate God. There's one more point and it's just too long. We don't have the time to look at it today. We were going to talk about walking in light. We're going to save that for next week. So I'm going to bump down to this application. The application, based on what we've just said, is very simple today. We need to be walking in love. We need to be imitating God. We need to be fighting off selfish sins. We'll get to this. We need to be walking in light and we need to be striving to know and practice God's will. And the application for this is is very simple. If these are the things that you want to do and want to be about, it's going to take a good amount of discipline. I've noticed that in the Christian life that I can't set it on autopilot or cruise control. 
It takes discipline to walk in love. It takes discipline to learn about God. It takes discipline to imitate God. It takes discipline to fight off selfish sins. To what level are we going to commit ourselves to acting like children of God today? To what level are we going to give ourselves to acting like proper representatives of Jesus Christ? If it can't love and it won't love, don't do it. Don't live in it. Don't practice it. And that's how it, that this hit me hard this week as I was looking at my life and I had a lot of time to, to be introspective this week because I was sitting down and lying down a lot and I, I looked at my life and I was asking this kind of question is what and how am I walking in love? What are those things that I'm doing in my life that have no ability to love? The things that I consider all in good fun, just funny, it's just something I like to do or why shouldn't I do it? Maybe the better question is who can it love, Todd? Can it love? Will it love? Does it bless your Lord? Does it bless your Father? Does it imitate your God? Does it represent the name of Jesus Christ well? To what degree does God deserve a fragrant offering and sacrifice from our lives, people? Do you desire to imitate your God and your Father? Do you? Do you imitate God and do you want to be like your Father? See, the only thing we cannot afford to do is to neglect our calling and throw away our eternal hope and confidence. I want to say this today. Let's get it, love. Let's get it, love, is the far and away number one priority and schedule of our lives because it is. And I know we're busy people. I know we got a lot going on, but never at the sake of neglecting love. Never. Let love drive our every thought because this is what Paul says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, Paul also said this, let all that you do be done in love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this message today. I thank you for the ability to deliver it. Thank you for the strength that you provided, Father. I know this is important. I hope this was represented well. I taught me a lot this week about love and what it means to imitate God. I pray that you would influence and encourage all of us today to look at our lives, to look at how we practice, to look at the things we talk about, to look at the thanksgiving that we should give to you and, and the things that we explore and the things that we spend time on and the people we spend time with. And ask this question about all of them. Does it love? Does it love? Can it love? Does it build up? Does it strengthen? Does it encourage? Does it bless my God? Does it bless those around me? Those are really good questions. Because we're called to imitate you, Father. And I pray that you'd give us the strength and the understanding and the motivation, once again, to walk in love as you've designed us, because that's how we have life with you, because of Jesus and the cross. We thank you for this opportunity to study this today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.